following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. It's easy to live with a sense of entitlement, isn't it? Uh, to think that someone owes us something, to think that we are uh, very deserving. And, and sometimes we do that when we're not even aware of it. And, and sometimes we can think that we deserve certain privileges and then actually become arrogant about it. Uh, we live in a culture of entitlement, and there are a lot of unreasonable expectations that we have. We kind of have a you-owe-me mentality lots of times. People believe that society and a company or even the government owes them something, even though they might not earn or deliver value. Sometimes we want something really quickly. We want things the way we want them. We want them when we want them. Internet access comes to mind. Cell phones come to mind. Air conditioning comes to mind. We have this consumeristic retail mindset. Uh, I pay your paycheck, so you have to listen to me. We get upset, we get offended when we're at a restaurant or somewhere else and things aren't perfect. The things we want them to be the way that we want them to be and we guerrilla criticize online because of it and we think, hey, I can give that feedback because I am owed, because I am paying. And we, we really do demand to be treated in a certain way and here's our default standby. I deserve to be happy. How many times do you hear that, right? And, I, and we can point out so many egregious examples in life. But what if we treated God like that? And what if we thought that God expected nothing of us and that he owed us salvation? So what we're going to see in Romans 11 today is that something that every Christian needs to understand Really, every Christian needs to understand the message of Romans 11, 11 through 24, because it tells us why God saves Gentiles, and it's much more significant than you might think. And so I want you to stand with me, I invite you to stand with me as I read God's word, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 24, and this passage is, is telling us that God's kindness to Gentiles leads Israel to envy and calls for our deep humility and awe. There's nothing about entitlement here. There's nothing about us deserving anything good. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, 
although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness, God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that you are God over all. We acknowledge your presence and we acknowledge the power of your word. I pray that by your spirit that you would impress this message upon our hearts to such a degree that we would have a huge attitudinal application, that we'd be humble in everything, and that we would stand in awe of you. And that we acknowledge that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And Lord, we look to you. We look to you to do the work in our hearts, in our homes, in your church that only you can do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God saves Gentiles so that Israel envies our salvation and we humbly live in awe of God. Paul is bringing Romans 9 through 11 to a close. We are, we are coming close to the end of the chapter and it's a really fitting conclusion to these three chapters. In chapter 9, Paul really bared his soul. He talked about how, how he had great personal pain over how many of his kinsmen were rejecting Christ, and that he prayed for them, and that he knew that the Jews at that point, most of them were excluded from the ranks of the redeemed, and most of them were rejecting Christ, and so people were asking questions. So does this mean that God's word failed? And the answer is very clear. God's word didn't fail. People are rejecting Christ on their own accord. And God is sovereign over who is saved. But it is not all the physical children of Abraham are spiritual children of Abraham. And throughout history, God chose who would be his people. And, and Paul is quoting Hosea and Isaiah and the Psalms and supporting the idea that God accepts Gentiles and that a Jewish remnant would be saved. And as, as chapter 9 went on, it went into great detail, really, of the rejection of the gospel by the majority of the Jews that left them in a precarious position. 
And it reflected God's sovereign choice, but also Israel's disobedience. And so when you go into chapter 10, you move from God's sovereignty as the primary focus to human responsibility as the primary focus. And we see in chapter 10, there's no excuse for not believing the gospel. That the gospel has been clearly and widely proclaimed. But Israel refused to submit to it. They said, no, we're going to get salvation. We're going to get justification. We're going to get righteousness the way we want it. We're going to kick God's program to the curb and we're going to work for it. Proverbs tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but the way is the way of death. And they were going in the way of death. They were blinded. But then at the end of the chapter, there's this note of hope. There's this bleak picture that's been painted for Israel, and there's this note of hope. It pictures God as a loving heavenly father with his arms stretched out mercifully towards those that are denying him and rejecting Christ and speaking against Christ and actually working very hard against the gospel. So there's this picture, this merciful picture. And then we come to chapter 11, and things start coming into better focus for us. We, we see that there's a present remnant. We see that this remnant is, is a scrap of the Jews. It's small. It's not a, a large part of them, but it's enough for us to say, okay, God keeps his promises. And, and Paul used himself as the best example, right? He said, look, I'm a Jew. I'm saved. God keeps his promises. There's a remnant. So the present remnant reminds us that God keeps his promises, but it reminds us of something else, and it's painful. It reminds us that many are hard-hearted and are rejecting the gospel. Many. And despite their rejection, God has not cast them off. It really pushes us to strong evangelism, like unlikely Paul, and any... any really points us to not write anybody off and not to have a list of you know, people groups or people that you know that, that aren't going to be getting the gospel from you, that we're to love the lost, that we're to lean on Christ, that we're to, to leave the results of our, of our gospel preaching in God's hands. And it gives us encouragement as well, that we're not alone, that there are lots more that are going to be saved, and that yes, we know that at this point in time, Gentiles are vastly outnumbering the Jews in the church. But God has not rejected Israel. He's got a plan for Israel. Now, not all Jews are going to be saved. Chapter 9, verse 27 said, Though the number of, of the sons of Israel be as the sand on the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. But this gives us expectation. This gives us expectation of multiplied grace, that God is at work, and he's saving whom he will save, and he never rejects the elect. Jew and Gentile alike, and that this should lead us to great empathy. We should be feeling for those who are not saved, that the rest of Israel is hardened at the moment, and that many, though, in the future will experience God's grace in salvation. They will turn to the Lord. And so we should never give up our gospel ministry. We should never presume upon God's grace and think that somehow we deserve it, somehow we merit it in any way. And so you come to where we're at now in this passage. Verses 11 through 24. We see why God saves Gentiles. Now, in verses 25 to 32, we're going to see God's irrevocable promise to Israel. 
So 11 through 32 is about God's future restoration of Israel. Then you get to the very end of the chapter, and it's so beautiful. It's verses 33 to 36. God's glory in the immeasurable eternal riches for everyone who is in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. But today we're really looking at why God saves Gentiles, verses 11 through 24. And it's more reason for us to have empathy because God provokes Israel to envy, and it generates humility in believers, and, dis- and, and then God is displaying kindness and severity. We want God to display the kindness. We really don't want the dis- severity. But if some are getting saved, that means some are not getting saved. So there's three parts of this. There's really three movements here, and I'm going to point one out after another, okay? First of all, this. Israel's envy is due to transform lives. Verses 11 through 16. Verse 11, he asks the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Like literally, is the fall eternal? Is it forever? Are they never going to get saved? And the answer is, of course not, by no means. But here's the deal. Through their trespass, through their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So salvation has come, it's appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's to make them jealous, envious. Now, that's a negative word for us. You're taught from, from the time you're a kid, don't be jealous, don't be envious, and you realize that from being a kid all the way to being an adult, you, you just struggle with jealousy and envy. You want something that someone else has. In fact, it's used negatively in the New Testament. The Jews were envious of the apostles. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17. They're jealous of their success. They're jealous of their growing influence and power. In Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer is jealous of the apostles' miracle-working power that they got from the Holy Spirit, and he asks for it. He wants to pay for it. And so you always think of jealousy and envy as a bad thing, but here, and you have to think differently here. This is counterintuitive. This is good envy. This is good jealousy. Okay, so you always, you know, you grow up, envy bad, jealousy bad here, envy good, jealousy good. In this context, envy, the desire to have something that someone else has, is a good envy here. John Stott put it this way, not all envy is tainted with selfishness. If the thing desired is good, a blessing from God, what he wants people to enjoy, this envy is not bad, it is good. Unbelieving Jews will be envious of believers' blessing. Verse 12. If their trespass means riches for the world. That's the Gentiles hearing and believing the gospel. Here's the repeated cycle in the book of Acts. Gospels preached in the synagogue. Jews get upset. Some believe. Some are hostile. They go to the Gentiles. Many believe. Multi-ethnic church. That's from the get-go, by the way, from the day of Pentecost, multi-ethnic church. And if whole synagogues would have been converted, Christianity would have been seen only as a part of Israel. But he says, if if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This will be glorious. If Israel's sin led to the riches of salvation for Gentiles, can you imagine what the conversion of of Jews would mean? How, How much better that's going to be for Christ's church? For God's eternal plan? And then he says in verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Now I want you to raise your hand if you are a Christian and a Gentile. That means you're not a Jew. Okay? That you're a Christian and a Gentile. The majority of this group. Okay? This is like, listen up people. 
This is the first time in Romans that Paul has said, um, hey, Gentiles, listen up. Just you. You know, Jews, take a nap for a few minutes. Gentiles, listen up. So he wants the non-Christian, he wants the, excuse me, the non-Jewish Christians in Rome to understand God has not forsaken his people. In fact, the reason you're saved is because of his people. Now, he wants, he wants uh, Christian uh, Gentiles to, to take notice of this today. He doesn't want us proud that somehow we think we merited our salvation. Somehow we were better than the Jews in some way. And he says this, I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, so I magnify my ministry. Here is Paul, a Christian Jew, who is a missionary to pagan Gentiles. And, and God had told him, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. They're going to listen. And here's Paul, who cares deeply for his people. And he says in verse 14, I, I magnify my ministry in order that I might make my fellow Jews jealous. And, and some of them would be saved. So Paul was one who understood God's sovereignty and salvation, okay, all the way. Uh, those whom God foreknew, he predestined and called, uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And by the way, if I think sometimes Christians uh, misunderstand what God is saying in his word, and they go, I just don't want to hear about God's sovereignty and salvation. And I think something's wrong with our wiring sometimes because we go there, that way. But you need to know this. Here is Paul, who fully understood that, who was saying very strongly, I have a responsibility to deliver the gospel to everyone. I think every Christian should think this way. God knows who, who he's going to save, and it is my responsibility to share the gospel with every living person I run into. Paul wants his people saved. Here he is, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he is praying for the Jews to be saved. And he's not going to hold back. He doesn't know who the elect are. Only God knows who the chosen are. But here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, I suffer hardship to imprisonment as a criminal. Criminal, criminalize the, the gospel preaching and, and the word of God is not imprisoned. It is free. And he says, uh, for this reason, I'm enduring all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That they may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. You, you look in verse 11 and verse 14, you see that word jealous, envy, and you wonder, what's that going to look like? How's that going to play out? They're going to see what the Gentiles get in Christ and go, wow, we want that. I found one spot that I think might be pointing to that happening. If you want to look over in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It's an interesting spot. The early church has a problem people are getting left out of the distribution of food, widows to be exact. And so what the church does is it solves the problem. Uh, we're going to set aside servants to care for the needy. But here's what we're told in verse 7. That seems like a hard left turn, but I think, I think it might be connected. A lot of Jewish priests converted to Christ. The idea is that we're told that as the church sets aside servants to care for the needy, the next verse says, and by the way, a lot of Jewish priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What were the priests to do? They were to bring the offerings of the people to the poor, but they weren't doing it. Here you have spirit-led Christians who were generous 
and they were creating a community where no one was left out, where every needy person was cared for. That's how the church is to operate. And this is what Israel was supposed to do. And it seems to me that maybe the priests saw it and were envious and were convicted and listened to the gospel. Paul may have had that in mind here. So first the Jews won the Gentiles. Jews are out preaching the gospel and they, 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 they preach the gospel and Gentiles get saved. But then Gentiles win Jews. Awesome. The question for us though is, would Jews look at us and be envious and give the gospel a listen? Let me give you another example. Right across the freeway, there's a Jewish congregation. What if they took a walk? And they said, we're going to go over to that Grace Church of Orange. they got a cross up there. They seem to stand for this Jesus that we don't believe in. And we're going to do an experiment. We're going to go and we're going to walk over and join them when they gather for like three weeks. But we're going to follow them home too. We're going to go to the school with them and to work with them and to the supermarket with them and hang out in the neighborhood with them and go to the ball field with them and and, and we're going to see what they're really up to. And the question comes, would they see Christ in us? And would they want what we have? The question really is, is what kind of example does your life give for Christ? Would unbelievers look at your life and want what you have? Not a problem-free life, but a life free in spite of your problems. Not a perfect life, but a faith and a heart and attitude that says, no matter what happens, I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. Because transformation looks different than fake. You can try to tack on the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit in believers that are yielded to God. The best examples in my life are people who are believers who admit their weakness and confess their sins. The best example for me are those who, who in spite of a tough life, are seemingly growing in Christ via prayer and the Word and, and fellowship, and, and they share their faith. And it makes me want to do that too. What's someone going to conclude from looking at your life? Well, verse 15 says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? God brings the dead to life. The f- through the foolishness of preaching the gospel, God saves those whose hearts he opens to the gospel. That contributes to a worldwide eternal significance of the gospel transforming hearts and lives. Their acceptance, their reconciliation with God. God reconciling enemies to himself through the atoning death of Christ. See, how much more? And think about it. If God can bring good out of something bad, which he does it all the time. In this context, that something bad is Israel rejecting Christ. And if God can bring Gentile salvation out of that, how much more will he bring something extraordinarily good out of something good? 
Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. In Numbers 15, as Jews were preparing their daily bread, they were to set aside a, a choice piece of dough, uh, the first fruits, an offering to God. And that what they did was they assumed that the rest of it was holy, that God sanctified the rest of it because they were devoted to the Lord, and as they mixed it, they would give the first part to him. And so they said, God set this apart and set us apart and blesses our home. Then it says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. One comes from the other. It's connected. It's related. He's using an analogy here. He's using two things that are pointing to the same thing. The first fruits and the root. What does that mean? The lump and the branches. What does that mean? Well, the first fruits and the root mean the forefathers of the Jews, the patriarchs. The lump and the branches are the remainder of the nation, the Jews as a people, unbelieving Israelites. It's logical to call the ancestors the root, the descendants the branches. But who are the wild ones? That's Gentile believers. That's us, if you're, a, if you're a Gentile believer. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were holy. They were set apart for God. Uh, so was Israel. Uh, God will not forsake Israel. Uh, he's not going to save all Israel because they're not all elect. They're not all chosen. That was made very clear in the, in the preceding two chapters. But God established a relationship with Israel through his covenant with Abraham, consecrated as a people in the consecration of Abraham. So if the root, Abraham and the, and the patriarchs, are holy, then branches, their descendants are too. They're set apart for God's work, and his work with the branches won't be complete until they bear the fruit that he intends to grow through them. God is going to save a lot of Jews in the future. It won't just be a scrap. It won't just be a remnant. There will be a large portion. The next passage we're going to look at says that all Israel will be saved. I don't know if that means that every single Jew living right then will be saved or if it's just the majority of them. But the fact is it won't just be a scrap or a remnant. It will be the majority. It says all. Now here's the thing. One thing you do know for sure He's not going retroactive and doing a grandfathering in and saying, hey, we're going to save every Jew that ever lived. It's going to be a lot of Jews during that time who get saved, and we, if, if, if we're there, we'll rejoice. Or we'll re if we're already with Jesus in heaven, we'll rejoice in their, in their salvation. Here's what it does in my heart. It makes me go, wow. The Gentiles could only hear because Israel rejected Christ. And now the Jews can only believe because Gentiles accepted Christ. This is all in the sovereign wisdom of God. The Jews are going to see many Old Testament promises fulfilled in the Gentiles, and they're going to believe. They're going to see changed lives. They're going to believe. See, the gospel broke the Jews. It wasn't your everyday orthodox observance. This was counterintuitive. This was a move they didn't expect, but they should have, as they're reading their Old Testament. This was vintage God. This is unexpected God. This is God doing something that, that is out of the ordinary, humanly speaking, because he, he's God. He does it. He says, I'm going to save everyone who believes in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. There's no distinction in the condemnation of sin. There's no distinction as he confers salvation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He forms a surprising family. I want you to look around right now. I just want you to look around. I know you're looking straight at me. I want you to look left and right and behind you. Just do that quickly. Left and right and behind you. Pretty surprising, huh? 
I mean, just in this room, you're like, ooh, them? Now, that's, that's assuming that everyone would be a believer. I don't know who's a believer in this room or not. But I'm seriously, let's just say everyone in this room was a believer in Jesus. You look around and go, hmm, surprising. Then you look in a mirror and you're like, whoa. But see, to get this surprising family, you've got to shape shift at both ends of the spectrum. This is what God is doing. To get this result, the universe-creating, sin-taking Christ puts Jew and Gentile together, and it's kind of like God saying this, uh, put your big boy pants on, people. This is the way it's going to be. Jew and Gentile will be at the table for eternity. Enticing them to envy over a godly, God-dependent, gospel-changed example of Gentiles. Genius in the heart of God. This is God. Here's the question you have to ask yourself. Does my life repel or attract people to Christ? God is going to use Gentiles to reach Jews via envy and example. God saves Gentiles so that Israel envies our salvation. That's the first thing you see in this passage. Let's move on to the next. Verses 17 to 21. Gentiles' humility instead of arrogance. Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, so you got unproductive branches being replaced. Um, By the way, God had warned of the consequences of unbelief and idolatry. Jeremiah 11, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form, and he has kindled a fire on it, and its branches are worthless. Jesus warned Israel. In Matthew 21, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to the nation, the people producing the fruit of it. So so you, Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, you're just a sucker off of of an old uh, wild tree, grafted in among the others, and now you're sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree. God does this. He grafts in the Gentiles. He's talking about an olive tree. This is common knowledge for anyone who lived in that time and in that place even now Uh, we have in california a mediterranean climate we see olive trees all over the place right those gnarled trees that that drop the olives that make the driveway purple olive trees are part of the life the landscape the industry of the middle east and the mediterranean it's significant uh, industry even to this day well olive trees can last hundreds of years thousands of years And as they age, they are less productive. And so to jumpstart their productivity, younger branches are grafted into older trees. Now, if you're familiar with any kind of grafting, you would be probably picturing like what I would picture. When I was a kid, my grandfather did a lot of grafting. So he would take his pocket knife out of his pocket, and he would take, let's say, a rose or or a fruit tree, and he would do some micro-grafting, okay? He'd kind of cut a notch and put it together and wrap it with this green tape, and I would just be in awe of going, what is grandpa doing? And, and then you'd see these roses that were just beautiful, and there'd be a mixture of two, or fruit that would come out, there'd be a mixture of two. And um, a, friend of our, a friend of mine uh, uh, said to me, when grafting, it's important that the layers of the host and the grafted-in plants have to line up exactly the right way. And the reason why is because there's this xylem and phloem, Seriously, those are the words. And, and they move the water and the nutrients uh, from the roots to the branch, and, and all this great stuff is happening. But if you don't line it up right, the graft won't take. You see, God lines everything up right. We could make a mistake grafting. God never makes a mistake grafting people into his church. Now, 
here's the thing. You think about that, and you're like, okay, well, you picture this little micro-grafting going on. You could look this up, and seriously, you take an olive tree, and it's, the rootstock is good. And I, and I found pictures of this. You, you basically see a, a, like a, an olive tree cut off in the middle, and literally a big branch like into it, grafted in. This is, this is like macro-grafting. I'm making up a, a term here, okay? But the idea is this. It's literally like you look at it, you're like, how, how did that work? But here's what the farmer of, of that olive is getting. A strong root and a lot of fruit. So the strong-rooted root, the, the, the rootstock, was, was, was healthy but wasn't producing. So you got the root that's healthy, you cut off the unproducing branches, you graft in young producing branches that will actually bear fruit. Now think about this. How many Gentiles are getting saved? I mean, you got the majority of people in this room are Gentiles, and it just so happens, I don't know how it worked out, but at Grace Church of Orange, a bunch of Gentile Christians showed up who, who used to be outsiders, who used to be without God and without hope in the world, Ephesians 2.12. And, and we're grafted in among Gen, uh, Jewish believers, and we share the covenant promises. Here's the church is going to be forever. And who's the church is right now? A fellowship of wild and cultivated branches grafted in together. That has to produce humility in us. It has to. But our tendency is to be prideful of what we get. And so our liability has to get pointed out. So we have to have a warning. Verse 18. Do not become arrogant toward the branches. The branches are the unbelieving Jews who were cut off. If you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. The root is the, are the patriarchs, the believing patriarchs. Humility, not arrogance. You gotta understand your salvation. A lot, of, a lot of Gentiles don't understand their salvation. They think, oh, you know, it's all about me. The root nourishes and supports. Some Israelites don't appreciate their heritage. Most Gentiles don't even know about it. Believing Gentiles are blessed by God, spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are blessed because we are grafted into the covenant that God made with Abraham. You read about it in Galatians chapter 3. That Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then it says this, be sure that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that Abraham would be justified by God and that then God would justify Gentiles... Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. That the Gentiles will also be partakers. So it says those who are of faith are of blessed with Abraham, the believer. And it goes on to say that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. Like, in our place, became a curse for us. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He died on the cross in our place. And it says this, 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that's why you will say, as verse 19 says, that's why you will say with a humble heart, oh, wow, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's why Paul had such anguish of heart over his unbelieving brethren. That phrase, that, that, that declaration in verse 19 literally is humble acknowledgement of what God did. Like humble acknowledgement of what God did. Oh, in, in place of unbelieving Israelites, those branches, a wild olive of believing Gentiles grafted in, people from all nations trusting Jesus, now partakers in a relationship to God through salvation, and, and that some, not all, but some of the branches were broken off? Now you think about it, in, in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, many believed, a remnant believed during his earthly ministry, and in the early church, most Christians were Jews. But now, Gentiles outnumber the Jews. And so Romans 4.11 told us, Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised, without being or becoming a Jew, so that righteousness might be reckoned to us. In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so verse 20 says, that's true. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They were not teachable. Their minds were shut to God. They were pushing him away. They were, their conscience wasn't functioning. They were petrified in their hearts. They had no sensitivity to the gospel. But then he says, but you stand fast through your faith. So don't become proud, but fear. Don't become proud, but fear, Gentiles. Don't become arrogant. You know what that means? Don't do a victory lap and gloat and grandstand. Don't become conceited. This line, don't become proud, is a different Greek word being used than the word for arrogant before. It literally is, it's phroneo, and then fear is phobeo. It's like a play on words. It's a, it's a poem. Uh, don't be conceited, but fear. Your self-understanding as a believer ought to be, I don't think I'm better than anyone. I don't think I'm more deserving than anyone. And that I'm saved merely by the mercy of God. And if you look into chapter 12, when I was a brand new believer, I read Romans 12 just over and over and over again because I wanted to be like that. But you look at 12.3 and it talks about not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's the same word that's used where it says don't become conceited. And it's, it's actually, it's hyper. It's hyper proud. Don't be hyper proud. Don't think high thoughts of yourself. And the idea is that we are easily closed off and arrogant towards the world. And we get this exclusive club mentality rather than an open invite to all, that the welcome mat is open, is out there for all. I've actually heard people say, in the years I've been a believer, I got saved in 1982, you can do the math, but those years, over those years, I have heard people say, I don't want new people coming to my church. I'm not sure if Jesus is dwelling in that church. We should stand in awe of God to the point that we literally kneel before him in silence, 
falling on our faces in reverence and worship, knowing that he saved us merely by, by his grace. I think it is astonishing that we would have that tendency to become arrogant towards the natural branches, the Jews, because they were cut off in their unbelief. But that root supports us. And God blesses Jew and Gentile believers to the root of his covenant promises. I think it is tragic that throughout history, Jewish Christians have been subjected to attitudes of Gentile superiority and shunned or even barely accepted into Christian fellowship. Like you go have your own churches over there and we'll have ours over here. Don't be arrogant, but rather be afraid. This is like Philippians 2. You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and do his good pleasure. Verse 21 is sobering. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Ouch. No reason for pride. 1 Corinthians 1.29 says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It wasn't because you were worthy. It wasn't because you're deserving. It's not because you're entitled. Don't be prideful thinking that you've taken the place of Jewish unbelievers. It's incompatible with God's grace. If you're thinking that way, you might not be saved. If you have a, an attitude of self-satisfied pride at membership in Christ's church, you might be displaying a heart that is unregenerate and God is hardening that heart in judgment. We have to be humbled by God's grace. We are not in the body of Christ by our own deserving. We are, we are nothing apart from the promises of God in Christ. We, here, we don't need to just be humble people. We need to be a humble church overflowing with God's grace and cheerfully cooperating in seeing grace overflow to unlikely people especially those we do not like. Grace promotes harmony in a church and grace promotes humble evangelism. Grace overflowing should keep us humble and should keep us outward looking, not thinking about ourselves. I know it's very easy for all of us to think this way, to think, wow, I am enjoying the benefits of salvation, and, and then somehow slip in our thinking and start thinking, well, I, it's because I kind of deserve that. This is about humility for all the redeemed, uh, where, where Gentiles had thought they had kind of catapulted themselves into something great and getting saved, that they, you know, overcame their uncircumcised odds, and they're like, wow, we got in, and Israel didn't, and the pride was slipping through the cracks. God has mercy on whoever he desires. God hardens on whoever he desires. The grace of God melts hard hearts. But please, I beg you, let Jesus crush your pride. Any ounce of pride in your heart, but let Jesus reignite your soul for a passion for the gospel. Verses 22 to 24 is the last segment here. And it's about God's kindness and severity. So Israel's envy is due to transformed lives, and, and Gentiles need to be humble instead of arrogant, and then note God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, God's kindness towards you provides you continuing his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Very sobering, this severity of God towards the fallen, towards the disobedient, towards the lost. Uh, they're snared, they're trapped, they're, they're the stumbling block, the retribution, the recompense, the reward. 
that they get for not acknowledging God. It's, it's a Romans 1 type of judgment. They did not honor God as God. They, they did not give thanks. They became futile in their understanding. They're, they speculated, and their foolish heart was darkened. They professed to be wise. They became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and lower. And God gave them over to, to sinful depravity. So the severity is the hardening of Christ's rejectors, and that will mean eternally sep- eternal separation from God in hell for some people. And if you wince at that, that's the right response. But then kindness, mercy towards those who, who were rejecting Christ and have turned in faith to him, that that means heaven for some, heaven for many, the kindness of God, the mercy of God in saving. And then it says, if you continue in his kindness, if you abide, if you remain, because the Bible tells us very clearly that we know that God's sovereign love is upon us as we continue in the faith, as we persevere in the faith, if we keep seeking to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus until the day we meet Jesus. That we are safe in God's love if we continue on. First John 2.19 tells us they went out from us because they did not really belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. We all know people that have professed faith in Christ and literally have fallen by the wayside and looked dead, and we don't know for sure if they're saved or not. But cut off here literally means exposing unbelievers. This is not about losing your salvation. This is about counterfeits being revealed. Uh, Hebrews 3 tells us that we share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the gospel by which we are being saved is the one that we are to hold fast unless we believed in vain. So verse 23 says, if they, if they, the Israelites that aren't believing, do not continue in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. God has the power to graft them in. This is like Ezekiel's you know, valley of the dry bones. Like, wait, they're over on the scrap heap with dead branches. Well, God makes the dead live so he can graft them back in because God will save all who do not persist in unbelief. Verse 24, if you were cut off from by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary by nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will the natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? If God can save Gentiles that weren't born with the privileges pointing to Christ, of course he can save a Jew who's born with the privileges pointing to Christ. But no entitlement, pure mercy. Maybe the worst case scenario of proud entitlement ever is probably Judas Iscariot. In John chapter 12, merely days before the cross, merely days before the crucifixion and the the substitutionary atonement, Six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany and they give a dinner there for him and Martha is serving. Lazarus, who he rose from the dead, is one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary takes this huge bunch of of a pound, a pound of expensive ointment and, and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair and the, the house is filled with the fragrance and Judas Iscariot who was about to betray Jesus, says, why wasn't this sold for a big sum of money and given to the poor? And verse six says this. He said this not because he cared about the poor. 
but because he was a thief. And he had charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. While walking in the shadow of Jesus. And if it weren't for me, I would think that Jesus was the worst case scenario. That Judas was the worst case scenario. Actually, the worst case is me. That's exactly what Paul thought, by the way. He says, I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. I think every Christian should think that they are the worst, that we are unworthy, that we were not deserving of being in the, in, in the body of Christ, that we were not deserving of being saved, that only Jesus is worthy. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He, Jesus, is worthy of all praise. And, and what God is doing in putting his church together, it was sovereign in the mind of God from the beginning, Jew and Gentile together. Uniting believers to work harmoniously for the gospel simultaneously and collectively in awe of God Almighty. That is our calling, to be very humble, to be in awe of God. So why don't we pray? Lord, thank you that you saved Gentiles so that Israel envies our salvation and we humbly live in awe of you. Lord, we know that, that we are weak and you are strong. And we praise you for your grace and your mercy. And thank you, Lord, that you're the one who generates humility in our hearts. And you're the one who points us to be in awe of you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.